you, Bill. Praise the Lord. We all can have a seat. You know, it's uh, wonderful to make that declaration, I surrender all. But really, we know that <laughs> we all fall short of surrendering all, right? And we know that we only can begin to surrender what we can surrender because he's the one who surrendered all for us, right? So he laid down his life. He loved us before we first loved him. And so we do absolutely want to make that declaration that we're going to um, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice for him uh, to be that burnt offering, to be, uh, you know, someone who surrendered at his feet. But thank God that even in the process when we don't surrender all, we still know God has surrendered all for us. And so what fasting does, which is what we're going to look at tonight, is it helps us get in that place of surrender, right? It helps us position ourselves in a place of vulnerability, of humility before the Lord. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be looking at fasting. I know a lot of Christians, they fast in the new year, right? The beginning of a new year. They uh, decide to have a certain season of fasting. A lot of Christians, they uh, fast in some of the more traditional Christian calendar, church calendar time, the season of like Lent or maybe even Advent. A lot of Christians fast at that time. A lot of Christians fast. Um, they'll do a short fast from like Good Friday to Easter Sunday. We might discuss some of those things, but um, the Bible doesn't really care. God doesn't really care when we fast, right? If you want to fast as we enter into this new year, that's wonderful. But I think what the Bible is really after is just that... Um, we make fasting something that's applicable to our lives in the same way that prayer is. And we'll see that. I think that's what Jesus is getting after when he teaches on the subject of fasting. So let's, let's get into it. Fasting. Who likes to hear the word fasting? <laughs> I don't really like to hear that word. Why? Because I like food. Anybody else here like food? <laughs> and the reason why we like food is because God made food, right? He created all the delicious plants. He created all the delicious animals. He made all the herbs, all the seasonings to eat. In fact, the beginning of the Bible, it, it starts with a feast rather than a fast, right? So when God creates Adam, this is what it says in, in Genesis 2, verse 16. And Yahweh God commanded the man, Adam, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Whoo! A free-for-all buffet of everything that God had ever made. Could you imagine that feast in the Garden of Eden where there was no corruption? Could you imagine every tree loaded with fruit and vegetables being given to you to eat? Apples and apricots, plums and peaches, pineapples and mangoes, coffee beans and cocoa beans. The greatest salads and vegetarian dishes you could possibly imagine. Freely given to Adam by God. And in Noah's time, God says that he gave all of the animals to eat. And he gave the vines to drink from. They could have chicken and steak and slow-cooked pork ribs and wine and whatever they wanted. God gave an abundance, right? And we know in the New Testament, God rebukes those who would have people abstain from any sorts of food, right? And so, for instance, when Paul is writing Timothy and he's telling Timothy to deal with certain false teachers in the church, and a lot of them actually were Judaizers, this is what it says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. Paul says that these false teachers are forbidding to marry, and they're commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You know, Jesus, when he sends them out his disciples, sends out the 12, when he sends out the 70, he tells them to eat what was set before them, wherever they went, right? We know the Bible 
It begins with a feast and it ends with a feast. What's the end of the Bible? It's the great supper of the Lamb. A feast for those who enter into the joys of eternal life. So God gave us a feast at the beginning in placing us in a beautiful and lush garden. And he will give us the greatest feast imaginable. Something beyond what we can even comprehend at the end when we spend eternity with him. So food is good. Eating is a blessing. God made us dependent creatures who need food to survive. And God loves when we feast and enjoy the blessings of the vast variety of the food that he has created. In fact, three of the festivals, three of the feasts that he set up for Israel, they were all commanded to come to Jerusalem and spend several days or weeks. And one thing they would do during that time was feast, right? So anyone who engages in fasting because they believe the body is bad, like certain forms of spirituality, certain forms of Gnosticism think that way, or because they feel guilty and they feel like they need to work themselves into God's love. You know, you see like some of the Christians who beat their backs or, you know, crawl on their knees and fast, and they just think they're trying to work their way into God's love. Um, you know, um, those people aren't fasting properly. Why? Because their bodies are good, food is good, and God loves us freely because of the sacrifice of his son on the cross, and no other reason, right? So in light of all the feasting, and in light of God's, you know, unconditional love, why do we engage in fasting? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Well, after we're told that God gave Adam of every tree in the garden to freely eat, we're told that he was also given one stipulation. Let's read verse 17. Genesis 2, 17. But... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God wanted Adam to abstain or to fast from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, many scholars believe that that fast, that prohibition was likely a temporary one. For God later speaks in the Bible of the knowledge of good and evil being something that is good and for those who are wise. So kind of like how infants go from milk to meat, that was God's intention with that initial prohibition. But we all know the story. Adam wasn't patient, right? And he grasped for something that God knew would not be good for him and that he commanded him to stay away from. Adam wanted immediate gratification. He wanted everything now. He wanted all the wisdom, authority, and the created blessings of God's good cre creation at once. The knowledge of good and evil is, is, is largely spoken of as a kingly thing in the Bible. Well, Adam needed to be an obedient priest before he was given any sort of kingly authority. You know, God's creation doesn't work when it is grasped at like that. God created things to mature. He created things and people and animals and, 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 and plants to go through a process. But Adam refused to be dependent on God. He refused to allow God to grow him into new roles in life. And because he sought immediate gratification, because he, he refused that God-ordained fast, and instead sought wisdom and fullness in himself, he rebelled against God and he fell, right? And we all know the story's kicked out of the Garden of Eden and God locks it up and sets a cherubim, you know, guardian there with a flaming sword. Well, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, did not grasp for the kingly mantle like Adam did. Instead, Philippians 2, John 13, talks about how Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of suffering. And in due time, God exalted him. The Gospels begin with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River and then tell us about how he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is ministering to the woman at the well in Samaria, his disciples come to him with food. And he's like, I don't need your food. And they're like, what? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And he did finish that work on the cross. And God has highly exalted him through his humiliation. 
He is now at the place man was always intended to be, at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, free from all sin and corruption. But he had to go through the process that Adam refused to go through. So what does this have to do with us? Well, Jesus says a disciple is not above his master, right? We all are intended by God to go through a maturation process. We all need to learn how to be humbly dependent on our Heavenly Father as we're journeying towards that ultimate feast in the future. And one thing we see in the teaching of Jesus is that he indicates his disciples would be people who fast like he fasted. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about both prayer and fasting. And they're really parallel in, what he, in, in the way he talks about both of these subjects. So he begins with prayer, and this is what he says in Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Right? They have the praise of men. So Jesus, he then goes on to explain to them how they should pray. He, he, he gives them the Lord's Prayer, right? There's an expectation that his disciples will distinguish themselves from the hypocritical Jewish leaders of that day who just prayed for a show. In fact, he tells the disciples, when you pray, unlike you know, the hypocrites who do it on the street corners and standing in the synagogue, I want you to go in your prayer closet. Right? And pray to the Father who's in secret. And the Father who's in secret, He's the one who will reward you, right? Amen. Well, there's another expectation by Jesus, not that we will pray, like He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, but He, he goes on and He turns to fasting right after that. And this is what He says in Matthew 6, 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Again, He's same thing what he said about prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. With a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They get the applause. Wow, you're so spiritual. You're so great. But, when, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There is a reward to fasting. God will reward it. You know, notice that Jesus here, he begins by saying, when you fast, right? Just like when you pray. There is an expectation that his disciples would fast just as much as they would pray. Now, he nowhere gives us a command to fast, nor does he tell us exactly the type of fasting he wants us to engage in. But there is an expectation that his disciples would fast. And there are some guidelines of things we should do when we fast, right? Like making sure it's an activity that's not done for man, but that's done for the Father. Now, there's a second passage that also signifies Jesus expected that you and I would be people who fasted. And this is three chapters later in Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verse 14 says this, Then the disciples of John, this is talking about John the Baptist, before he's beheaded, the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. You know, John the Baptist's disciples, they're confused, right? Because John had taught them to fast. They know the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees fast. So they come to Jesus and say, isn't fasting this great thing in the Old Testament and something that's constantly commended? Like, why are we fasting, but, but you're not fasting, right? And Jesus um, says, uh, you know, um, well, my disciples are enjoying their time with me, right? 
The bridegroom is here. This is a time of celebration, right? What is Jesus' first great sign in the Gospel of John? It's turning water into wine, right? And making an abundance of celebration for people. But, you know, what is one of his other miracles, right? It's feeding the 5,000 with, with bread and with fish. Jesus loves to celebrate with his bride, a token of what we one day will experience for eternity. But he says, though in his earthly ministry, my disciples haven't been fasting with me, there will come a day when I am taken away and they will fast. Now, it's probably most likely that when Jesus was taken away in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're told all of the, the apostles disperse, except John and Peter kind of follow him at a distance, I would imagine in all of that trial and that great deep disappointment that they're facing, that they were fasting at that time. <laughs> out of fear, out of, out of worry, out of, you know, concern, maybe, you know, w whatever it might be, but, you know, that they're likely fasting from the time uh, he's taken there till he, he rises from the dead on Easter morning. And that's why many Christians observe a fast from Good Friday to Easter Sunday to commemorate the time when Jesus was taken away. So that verse of Jesus saying, when I'm taken away, you know, maybe it partially refers to that, like literally taken away at the garden or when he literally dies, right, and is buried, then they'll fast. But it's also probably speaking about the church age in general, just the time we're living in, right? Because there's a sense in which Jesus, you know, is taken away. But there's also a sense in which he's not taken away, right? When Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, what does he say? He says, lo, I will be with you <laughs> even to the end of the age, right? So there's a sense in which he's with us. There's a sense in which Jesus says in John 14, 23, if anybody loves me, I and my Father will come to him and we will make our home in them. But there still is a sense where we long to see him face to face, right? And Paul says that, you know, um, uh, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he says on another place that um, uh, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He said, you know, I know it's more necessary for me to be with you, but I much desire to go and to be with the Lord. So there's a sense that while the Lord is with us, we also have a sense that he is, in a sense, taken away. He was taken away in his ascension, in a sense. And, and we long for him in that sense. And so because we have a longing for the Lord in that sense, this is one reason why we engage in the practice of fasting. We fast because we long for that deeper experience of the presence of God. We fast to get the fleshly desires out of the way so we can more experience the lover of our souls who is with us. And so that's the thing with fasting. It is all about getting the flesh out of the way and positioning us in a place to receive from the God who is already giving, right? One minister put it like this, fasting is a God-appointed way to humble ourselves. Fasting is a God-appointed way to humble ourselves. So Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You know, anything that will enable us to humble ourselves is a priceless blessing. That is why we can rejoice at the idea of fasting, even though our flesh says, no, I don't want to fast, right? But because it is a means to humbling ourselves, when it is done in secret and when it is accompanied by prayer, we know that there is the blessing attached to it. James says this in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? That's a promise. You know, notice too that James doesn't say, that we're to pray to God and say, Lord, humble me, right? No, he says, humble yourselves. <laughs> um, and one way we humble ourselves, one way we humble ourselves is by fasting. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a phrase that's used 
uh, during uh, the Day of Atonement, where the Day of Atonement was a day when the people of Israel were supposed to afflict their souls. But also that word afflict can just mean humble. They're to humble themselves. Let me actually read it to you. It's in Leviticus 16.31. This is talking about Yom Kippur. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Now, Jews, from time, you know, from the time this law was given in the wilderness, they understood that to mean fasting. So, for instance, in the New Testament, in Acts 27, when Paul or Luke is at, when Luke is writing about the Day of Atonement, I think it's verse nine, Acts 27 nine. He talks about the fast, the fast, and he's referring to the Day of Atonement, that this was a time when they would afflict their souls. It was, it was the only day in the entire Jewish calendar where there was a mandatory communal fast. Every Day of Atonement was a mandatory communal fast. And it was a day when they would humble their souls. Now, what was the Day of Atonement? Anyone know what would happen? The high priest of Israel, what would he do? He'd go into the one place, he'd go only once a year, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? And he would present the blood there on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would make atonement for the sins of all of Israel for that entire year. And God said that on that day, he wanted them to do absolutely nothing. It was a Sabbath of solemn rest. He didn't want them to work. That meant they could make no money. In that sense, it was an affliction of their soul. He didn't want them to play. He didn't want them to eat, right? Why? That involves cooking and all other sorts of work. It's, it's a, a total affliction of soul. Rather, they were to be at complete rest. Their souls were to be fully humbled because that is how God's people benefit from his provision. We are simply completely um, passive receivers of what he does for us. We benefit from him when we are humbled, when we are at rest, when we are just totally surrendered to him, right? And we just say amen to his work inside of us. Now, speaking of his enemies who regularly rised up against him for his harm, this is what David says in Psalm 35. Psalm 35, verse 13, he says, But as for me, they were doing all these things to harm him. But he says, I'm not going to act like they're acting. As for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. What does that mean? He's praying and fasting for them. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. It's kind of like when Saul was in the cave. And David could have killed him. Did he kill him? No, he didn't kill him. Touched not the Lord's anointed. He just cut off a piece of his robe. And he showed Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And he, he even felt bad for cutting off a corner of his robe. So what is David saying when he said, I humbled myself with fasting? Really, that word there is just, I humbled my soul. I humbled my soul with fasting. Or I afflicted my soul with fasting. What they would do on the Day of Atonement. And um, why do we need to humble our soul? Why do we need to afflict our soul? Well, I don't know about you, but the soul can be pretty egotistical, right? It can be pretty arrogant. Our soul is comprised of our will, of our intellect, of our emotions. I want, I think, I feel. According to his flesh, according to his unrenewed soul, David would have been tempted to act towards his enemies like they had been acting toward him. But he refused that temptation, and he humbled his soul with fasting to gain the mind of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not important what we think. It's not important what we want. It's not important what we feel. But it's important what God wants, what God thinks, and what God feels. And that's why we need to humble and afflict our own souls. Because we need the mind of Christ. And fasting coupled with prayer, gets us to that place. In Isaiah 58, we're given an in-depth discussion of what true fasting versus false fasting looks like. At, the, at, at that time, Israel was fasting for a day. It appears they're doing this corporate fast, 
in order to gain help from God because they have enemies surrounding them. But God doesn't come and help them. Look what it says in Isaiah 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls? Again, there's, a, there's the parallelism there of afflicting your souls with fasting. Why have we afflicted your souls and you take no notice? They are complaining that God has not done what they wanted him to do. They thought that they could just fast for a day, twist God's arm, and he would do whatever they wanted him to do. But their hearts weren't changed in this fast. And that's why God didn't do what they wanted him to do. Look at how God responds to them. This is, again, in, in the second half of verse 3. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high? Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? God's like, you're not really fasting. You know, though, though you want deliverance from your enemies, you are enemies amongst yourself. You're treating your own people horrible, right? You're exploiting your workers. There's violence in your own community. There's all sorts of nonsense going on. And what God was really wanting was not them to abstain from food. God was wanting them to abstain from their own violence and wickedness towards one another. Their oppression. He was after true heart repentance. That's what fasting should always get to, is not a rending of the flesh, but a rending of the heart. He goes on to say this in verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke that you're putting upon each other? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall bring sport forth speedily, right? What you are seeking in terms of your own healing and deliverance, it's going to happen when you actually have my heart implanted in you and you start doing these things. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, this pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden. And like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. That sounds pretty good. You know, Israel had simply been putting on a show for God by fasting from food for one day, thinking that would be good enough. They're like the religious leaders Jesus talked about in Matthew 6. People who fasted and prayed for a show and tried to twist God's arm. We might even think of Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and tax collector in Luke 18. There Jesus talks of a Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like the tax collector. And he brings up a lot of reasons. He brings up six things that he does. One thing he says, I fast twice a week, God, and I do all these other righteous deeds. But God is after what? He's after our heart. And the person Jesus commends in that parable is the tax collector who wasn't even fasting. But he was with his face to the ground asking for mercy for his sins. Jesus, like Isaiah 58 says, wants us to fast from wickedness. He wants us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. He wants us to rid ourselves of any oppressive treatment of those around us. And when we do fast, it should not be with the mentality of, you know, 
twisting God's arm to get what I want, but for me to get my heart in line with God and, and, and begin to be a blessing to others. It can be a time, like Isaiah says, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. You know, when you go without a meal, you know what you can do? You can give that meal to the hungry person. You can set up a fund and say, I'm going to fast these days, and I'm going to put all the money I would usually spend on this meal, I'm going to put it in this fund, and I'm going to use this fund for the needy. Okay? Let's get back to the idea that we fast because the bridegroom is no longer with us. And that we fast because we have a longing to be with him and have his heart on our journey. I like something David Mathis wrote. He said this, We fast in this life because we believe in the life to come. We don't have to get it all here and now because we have a promise that we will have it all in the coming age. We fast from what we can see and taste because we have tasted and seen the goodness of the invisible and infinite God and are desperately hungry for more of Him. You know, here's the thing. In the Bible, fasting is never an end in itself. The vast majority of times fasting is talked about in Scripture, it is always coupled with what? Prayer. Fasting gives more opportunity and time for prayer, for drawing near to God. When we fast a meal or we fast several meals, we should use the time that we have given up to prepare the meal or to eat the meal to spend time with the Lord. We should be in a sensitive posture to hear from God, to be in expectant state, to have something where we can write things down, where we're not just praying to him, but we're, we're listening to him. So let's discuss the different kinds of fasts in Scripture. You know, there's, first, there's a lot of fasting in Scripture. We're not going to look at all of it, obviously. But there's a lot of individual fasting and there's a lot of corporate fasting. And the length of these fasts vary greatly. You know, people know of a, the 40-day fast maybe, or some people know the 21-day Daniel fast or something like that. But there's a whole lot of other different kinds of fasts. So I want to start with the easiest and then we'll work up the hardest. The easiest fast I see in the Bible is a night fast. A night fast. This was something King Darius and Daniel 6 did. Remember when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? This is what we're told in Daniel 6.18. He didn't want him thrown into the lion's den. Remember, his uh, administrators tricked him to sign, you know, something. And he was really sad. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. This is what it says, Daniel 6.18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. And no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. You know, I'll tell you what, if you struggle with fasting, how about you try the night fast? <laughs> no midnight snacks, right? And spend some of that time in prayer. Do it. Maybe you, you struggle and you just eat all night and you do a night fast. Try that one first. You know, besides a night fast, there's also a day fast in the Bible. In Judges 20, verse 26, we're told that Israel fasted until the evening. <laughs> so again, if you struggle with fasting, try a day fast, right? It's pretty similar to what a lot of people do today, which is intermittent fasting, right? You know, intermittent fasting has become really popular recently, you know, where people only eat for maybe like a six-hour window or something toward the evening, and people do that for health reasons because it is really healthy for you and you can lose a lot of weight and you know, keep the body cleansed. I know a lot of people did it during the whole uh, COVID season just because, uh, right, the, the, the thinner you were, um, the more likely you were to not have a, 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 a difficult time with COVID. So many secular people fast because of the natural benefits they see that accompany it. But if secular people can fast just because of the natural benefits they see from it, like intermittent fasting, how much more the people of God? Because the spiritual benefits far outweigh the natural benefits. And we will couple that time with prayer. For we seek to afflict our souls while they just are seeking to get more beautiful bodies. So if you struggle with fasting, 
Try the night fast. Say, you know what? Ah, I did the night fast. Try the day fast. Do an intermittent fast. Couple it with prayer. Take a baby step. There's also 24-hour fasts in the Bible. We see this with Israel under the, the, the leadership of the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 7. In that story, we're told how they put away all their false gods. They cry out to the Lord. They fast. And the Lord delivers them from their enemies, the Philistines. This is after they had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought they could just go out into battle with the Ark of the Covenant and God would fight their battle for them. They were already worshiping other gods, right? So God, you know, they're defeated. And they realize their victory only comes... When they actually turn to the Lord, they break down their idols, they pray and they fast, and God brings deliverance in a day for them. There's a night fast, a day fast, a 24-hour fast. There's a three-day fast. We see this in the book of Esther. In Esther, Haman had schemed to get the king to sign a wicked decree that would destroy all the Jews. Well, what um, was the Jews' response to that planned holocaust? Well, Mordecai tells Esther she needed to do something about it. So she decides that she'll risk her life. But before she puts her life on the line, she says that all the Jews in Shushan need to get together and they need to fast. This is what it says, Esther 4, verse 16. She says, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink. So this is not just a food fast, it's a water fast too. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Right? But she knew she was appointed for such a time as this. And of course we know she doesn't perish, but she saves the entire Jewish population. Why? Well, one reason is because they had a three-day fast, and they afflicted their souls, and they turned to the Lord, and they humbled themselves before him, and, and he delivered them. The Lord delivered them. Right? The Lord just gave an idea to the king and said, oh, you know, um, can you go get me the records of things that have happened? And, and he opens the records and he reads about the deeds of Mordecai. And, you know, basically everyone is, is saved. There's a seven-day fast. We see the followers of King Saul fast for seven days after he dies. Remember when David committed his affair with um, Bathsheba? And she has the child of the affair? And he's sick? What does David do? For seven days, he fasts until the baby dies, and then he anoints his head, and he washes himself, and he gets up and says, I fasted for seven days. I sought the Lord. Didn't go the way I wanted, but now I'm going to eat and worship the Lord. In fact, the first thing he does is he worships the Lord, and then he goes and eats. Well, there's a seven-day fast. There's a ten-day fast. And this one was only a partial fast. A lot of people like this. Yeah, just a partial fast. Yeah. Still get to eat my vegetables. Right? Um, but yeah, that one's in the Bible too. So you can do that. You can do a partial fast. That's good too. You know, when um, the Jews were carried into captivity in Babylon, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're there and Daniel's like, um, just feed us vegetables. And, they, and he says, do a test. See who's stronger after 10 days. Who was stronger after 10 days? Daniel and his three friends. And um, probably the reason they did that is because uh, the meat and stuff would have been sacrificed to the foreign gods there. We see a 14-day fast. That's in Acts 27, where all the men of Paul's ship were intentionally fasting in order to conserve food during a grave storm. And those who are religious would have been fasting for God's sake, too. And at the end of that 14-day fast, an angel appeared to Paul and spoke a prophetic word about how the entire, all the men on the ship would be saved. It was in response to the 14-day fast. There's a 21-day fast in Scripture. This one's also in Daniel. It's in chapter 10. And it's also a partial fast, just like the 10-day one was. And, uh, you know, he abstains from all the luxurious uh, meat and wine. And uh, then after the 21-day fast, he goes back to eating the meat and drinking the wine. And then there is, uh, so a lot of, that one's actually really popular, right? The 21-day Daniel fast, which is like, uh, you know, the vegetarian sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, you can do that one, you know. 
Um, there's a 40-day fast. Moses did the 40-day fast three times. Elijah did a 40-day fast once. Jesus did it. And all of these appear to be completely supernatural fasts because they didn't just fast food. They fasted water. Look what Exodus 34, 28 says. This is talking about Moses. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. So there's supernatural fasts. Don't try that one out unless God's going to help you. <laughs> okay. And lastly... We have the night fast, the day fast, the one day fast, the three day fast, seven day fast, 14 day fast, 21 day fast, 40 day fast. And then we have many fasts in the Bible where we are not told how many days they fasted. For instance, we're told how King Ahab fasted after he was confronted by the prophet Elijah for killing Nabal. But we're not told how long he fasted. This is what 1 Kings 21, 27 says. So it was when Ahab heard these words from Elijah that he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? See how humility a lot of times is connected to this idea of fasting? See how he has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. I think if his son would have humbled himself the same way, I think God would have delayed it again, because that's what God tends to do in these things. Again, we're not told how long he's in sackcloth and mourning, um, but there was a genuine fast where Ahab's heart was genuinely rended, and the Lord spared him um, for a season. Now, Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in the Old Testament. He wasn't the most wicked, but he was, he was near the top, right? And yet, look what fasting did for him. Wow. There's also the fasting of Nehemiah and Ezra, another fast of Daniel. They're all, that all lasts for unspecified periods of time. There's the fasting of King Jehoshaphat, a, a, too, that is not specified how long it was. And, and that was a corporate fast for all of Israel. When they're surrounded by a great army from the Moabites and the Ammonites, he knew, Jehoshaphat knew, he was incapable of winning the battle according to the strength of his flesh. So what does he do? He proclaims a fast. He got people to humble themselves and seek the Lord's strength in their weakness. You know, the Bible says, when I am weak, then I am strong, right? So how do you prepare for battle? What's the worst possible way? Eating no food, right? <laughs> Soldiers going there completely without strength. But what's the best way to fight a battle in God's mind? Eating no food, right? Going there with no strength of your own, but in the strength of the Lord. Amen. This is how we fight our battles. The Lord fights them. This is what it says in 2 Chronicles 23. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. <laughs> and then in verse 17, a prophet gets up in the midst of their fast, and he says this to the people. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. So what do they do? They get the Levites, they get the praise team, they send them out first, and as they're praising the Lord and worshiping God, God sets ambushes against all their enemies. And that all stemmed from what? A time and a season of fasting. Again, we don't know how long it was, but it was a corporate fast. We know in the book of Jonah that all the people of Nineveh, that large, great capital of that wicked empire, and all the animals in that city fasted. Yeah, animals fast too. And that's why at the end of Jonah it says, that not only was all of the city saved, but all the animals too. God had mercy on the animals. Animals in the Bible are, they're pictures actually of humans. So it's a, their repentance is a picture of a full, full repentance. Um, in the New Testament, we're told of the frequent fasting of Anna in the temple. Remember when the baby Jesus meets Anna? We're told that she fasted it. And that, that was part of her worship to the Lord, prayer and fasting. We've been going right through the book of Acts, and we see fasting all over the place. 
in Acts chapter 10, we're told how uh, it was when Cornelius was fasting and praying that an angel appeared to him. And the angel told him to go and send for Peter. We're told of how the leaders in Antioch, we looked at this on Sunday in Acts chapter 13, that they were praying and fasting, the five leaders, and that they heard from the Holy Spirit during that time. Concerning his own ministry, Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Now here he distinguishes hunger and thirst from fastings. I think that he is pointing out that the fasting was intentional and the hunger and thirst probably wasn't. And I imagine that his fastings, plural, were all different sort of timelines. You know, Scripture is filled with many stories of fasting, of many different varieties of fasting, of all different time periods of fasting. And during those periods of fasting, we see all sorts of things happen. Things like people being prepared for ministry, people being given wisdom of what they needed wisdom for, uh, people rendering, rending their heart in repentance, people seeking victory and deliverance, people simply worshiping the Lord and drawing near to Him. Just fasting. Jesus taught us that certain demons could only come out through what? Prayer and fasting. When we are at a place of deep dependence on the Lord, when we're truly humble, when we're truly surrendered, when we're truly submitted, the Lord can do mighty, miraculous things in our lives. You know, one other uh, unspecified time of fasting is given in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7. And, and this verse, I think, can speak to us about how um, we, we don't, Fasting doesn't necessarily need to be relegated to just fasting food. That is primarily what it is. And I want us to think about fasting primarily about fasting food, because that really gets at us, right? Food. That's really what gets to the heart of all of our issues. We are dependent creatures. We need food. So when we go without food, that's a big deal. But I do think there are other things we can abstain or fast from. And I think 1 Corinthians 7 brings this out. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, says this. Paul writes, Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Deprive one another of what? Yeah, sexual intimacy. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now notice here, they're not just fasting food, but they're also fasting that sexual intimacy for a period of time. Um, you know, this points to the fact that it can be healthy to abstain from other things besides food. For instance, I know a lot of people, you know, today, in our world today, what is the big thing that we can fast from? Well, the thing that takes up our time, right, is uh, our screen time, right? I remember looking at the average number of screen time for people. It's, it's, it's very high. I don't know, seven, eight hours or something like that. But... Um, a lot of people go on social media fast, right, or phone fast for a month. I know a lot of people, my friends did it in December, right? They said, I'm off social media for December, or I'm off social media for Lent, or I'm off social media for this time period because I feel like I need to be off social media for this time period, right? And it's an addiction problem for a lot of us. And what could we do if we're off of something like social media? Maybe it's something else, right? You're addicted to, I don't know what it is, TV, whatever, um, working out, you know, bodily exercise profiteth little, uh, but godliness profiteth much. And so, you know, there's all sorts of things you could have an addiction to that's unhealthy. And so, um, you know, there's a sense in which we can fast from those things as well. And what do we do with all that extra time we have? Well, we spend time with the Lord, right? We can spend time reading the Bible. We can spend time in prayer. We can go to church more. You know, um, when, we're, when our time is freed from those other things that, that we have been addicted to. All right, so let's just conclude. You know, I just want to conclude by, by reminding us that Jesus expected his disciples to fast in the same manner he expected them to pray. And I think most Christians don't ever fast, ever. They go through their whole life and never fast. 
But why does Jesus expect us to fast? Because he knows it's for our benefit. When we humble ourselves, when we afflict our souls, then we are more dependent on him. So I'd encourage you to consider fasting. You don't need to tell anyone you're fasting, right? Jesus, in fact, says we shouldn't. But fast and pray and see about making it more of a habit in your spiritual life. You know, maybe you just start with the day fast, right? Then you move to a 24-hour fast. Then you say, you know what, I'm going to do an Esther fast. I'm going to do a three-day fast, right? Maybe, maybe, or maybe you start something easier, like a Daniel fast or something, right? I know for a lot of people, the first two or three days are the worst. And then once you get through that, Things get a little easier on your body. And then maybe you can do the seven-day fast, right? Like uh, David did. 14-day fast like Paul. And if you do the 40-day fast with no water, no food, well, I guess you're not supposed to let anybody know. But I'll tell you what, you'll have your reward. <laughs> I want to end with this. 1 Corinthians 9.27. You know, Paul is talking about his life. He talks about how his life is a battle. He talks about how he's in all these fastings. And he says this about his body. 1 Corinthians 9.27. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You know, what was the first command God gave to mankind? He says, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion and subdue the earth. You know, you can't subdue the earth until you subdue yourself. You can't do anything for anybody else until you have mastery over your own body. And one way we do that is through the means of fasting, surrendering ourselves, giving ourselves up to God, and allowing him to use our members as instruments of righteousness for his purposes. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for what your word teaches us about fasting, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be more intentional to have seasons where we give up a meal, where we give up uh, several meals. Lord, to spend time with you, to pray, to afflict our souls, Lord, to the place where we could be conformed more to your very image. And I just thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've given in fasting. So may we make use of it, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, tomorrow night is the ladies' meeting, so ladies come out for that 7 p.m. And the men's group is back on this Saturday at 9 a.m. Men come out for that. Otherwise, see everybody else on Sunday. Amen? Amen.